Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Okay, welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. As always, I am here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, Sucheta. Boy, you know, today's conversation, uh, our guest is Dr. Tim Pitchell. We're going to center it around procrastination. I just shuddered when I heard that because I know how evil and how bad and how distracting and damaging procrastination is. I just continue to do it again and again and again. Lead us off with where we're going to go today with this conversation. Yes, it's great to be with you, Todd. And (laughs) you know what went into recording this particular session. I would like to claim that I never procrastinate, but that will be a big (laughs) lie. (laughs) So every day we are procrastinating something or the other, you know, something we want to do, but we just can't seem to get in the groove for, you know, lollygagging, time-wasting, aimlessly idling, or doing something completely different just to get out of what needs to be done? You know, have you found yourself in front of the refrigerator as you're about to launch a big project or get started with something big and you suddenly start cleaning the refrigerator? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the household chores that get done when I have to really focus on a hard project. Exactly. So I often find myself sucked into the whirlpool of get to it in a minute kind of problem. For example, this happened yesterday. You know, I woke up in the morning. And uh, I was literally opened my eyes, grabbed my phone, and I had a push notification from Anthropology, which is one of my favorite stores. And guess what it said? It says, tell them you'll be late. <laughs> a simple push notification captured my temptation to actually want to tell somebody I will be late. And I kind of you know, skimmed through what this little push notification was all about. So a simple reason for letting your concentration dwindle can be not wanting to do what needs to be done. So take example of my friend Emma, you know, her recent Facebook post said that why is time management so hard and who created five day, 40 hour week as a standard week? You know, this girl has too many hobbies to stand around at work all day and a huge yard, three dogs, one kitten. I need to be mowing, harvesting and Don't even want to talk about the inside of the house. Plus, I want to go swimming, be in shape, sigh. Fun versus responsibilities versus energy levels. So, I mean, I kind of empathize with Emma because if she has not only full-time job and she has a yard and dogs and cats and inside, outside of the house to take care of, when you look at the scope and breadth of all the work that needs to be done, I can see her lollygagging, you know, postponing everything that she needs to be doing. So funny thing is not only everybody struggles, Todd, with procrastination, but people have their own opinion about it. You know, people harbor views like it's a character flaw, like procrastination is a sign of laziness. Or often people lump it into time management or they say it's just bad time management problem. But it's more deeper than that. You know, a recent study that I read, it was actually conducted by Case Western Reserve University. I read it recently, but it's an old study done in 1997. They found that college age students who were procrastinators ended up with higher stress level, with more illnesses, 
and lower grades by the end of semester. So it's not just a casual problem of not getting into the groove. So that's why we have this amazing guest today. And he is not only an incredible researcher, but a podcaster like me and has a huge following. And you mentioned him earlier. This is Dr. Tim Pitchell. He's the director of the Center for Initiatives in Education and Associate Professor of Psychology at Carleton University in Ottawa. Tim has developed an international reputation for his research on procrastination. In addition to journal articles summarizing his research with his students, Tim has co-edited two books, the most recent of which is Procrastination, Health and Wellbeing. And my personal favorite is his other book, which is called Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, A Concise Guide to Strategies for Change. And this came out in 2013. It's a tiny 106-page personal guide that everybody needs to have it on their nightstand. So in case you kind of lose sight of procrastination being a major roadblock in self-progress, you can refer to it and kind of find a personal strength to overcome it. You can learn more about Dr. Pitchell's research and access his Psychology Today blog on his I Procrastinate podcast, which is at procrastination.ca. And Tim's research is complemented by his passion for teaching, for which he has won numerous awards, including the 3M National Teaching Fellowship, uh, Ontario Federation of University Associations Teaching Award, and University Medal for Distinguished Teaching. Tim has been an invited speaker across the country working with professors in universities and colleges to enhance teaching and learning. And I am an avid follower of Tim's work, and I highly recommend his podcast that he has been doing, I think, since 2009 or 2006, in fact. And it is such a joy and pleasure to have him, Todd. You and I are going to learn a lot from him. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. It's a conversation that I think every single person listening to this podcast uh, will benefit from. So, excuse the joke here. Let's not procrastinate any further. Let's get to it. Here is Suchita's conversation with Dr. Tim Pitchell. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Pitchell. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks, Suchita. It's great to join you today. Let me start with what I'm most interested in. In, which is executive function. And your research began with goal management or understanding how people pursue goals, formulate goals, rather formulate goals, pursue goals and avoid them. So executive function is often described as the goal-directed self-regulation. What is your understanding of the process of goal setting and planning? And how do you think these two are connected? Well, there's so much work in psychology and philosophy about planning and goal setting. And so it's quite a complex process because goals and plans have motivational force. And you can even think human beings are just a goal-directed species. We have all sorts of goals and we have multiple goals at once. So we can conceptualize using our imagination, the future, things that we want to have, desires and goals. And then to the extent that we initiate a plan around those, then we're more likely to act on them. So this process of setting goals, planning, action, and completion is the kind of cycle we see in the psychology of action. And it can break down. I mean, as you said, I was fascinated when I was doing my own graduate work with personal projects, personal goals, how we were achieving the things we were in our lives and how it made us feel. And it became painfully obvious to me. It was the things that we said we were going to do and never did, the goals we set that never acted on, that predicted 
a downturn in our well-being. So many models of goals and planning, but that's the gist of it. Yes, and in my practice, I have seen nothing but people who struggle in all aspects of goal management. And this topic is so interesting to me because when people procrastinate, they come to believe that when they seek help, somebody's going to tell them how to get over it or somehow they will get over it because they're seeking help and they don't recognize the inner work that needs to go into it. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. let me start with having you define procrastination for us. Do people plan first, then procrastinate, or they have an idea, a vague idea, and they want to accomplish it, but they don't have a specific plan? And is that what procrastination looks like? Well, I'm glad you jumped away from where we were at, because it's tempting to jump right to how to fix (laughs) the situation, and because goals (laughs) and plans will come back in that conversation. But what procrastination is, it's a form of delay. And that's really important, because I'll distinguish purposeful delay that we all engage in every day. In fact, We uh, delayed, for example, having this interview. The moment you contacted me, we didn't say, okay, let's do it right now. We set a date that fit both our schedules. And so we delayed until that point in time. And that's just part of rational action. But procrastination is a form of delay that's voluntary. In other words, I'm choosing delay, but I'm aware that this delay will probably cost me. In other words, I set an intention to act like, oh, I decided last week that I should work on a certain report today. And today comes along. And I voluntarily delay that, even though I think this isn't my best interest. I'm probably going to pay for that. And I'm emphasizing probably because the world's not a perfect place. And of course, it, it may not harm me, but generally my all things considered, I think it's, I'm going to be worse off for that delay. So procrastination is a negative form of delay. So I see you are emphasizing two important key points. One is purposeful and second is voluntary. So there are some circumstantial delays that, you know, unexpectedly if the flight got delayed and you were planning to go for a wedding, you just can't go. So <laughs> that it's not just delayed, the task is canceled, so to speak. So something that you mentioned here about the purposeful delay. So there's some level of awareness, right? Yeah. And that aware that you're procrastinating it. Not always. And I was actually, I want to contrast purposeful delay from procrastination. So purposeful delay is that I've decided I'm putting something off and it's in my best interest to put it off because I need more information or other things are going on. And there's inevitable delay, like you talked about with a plane being late. It's inevitable that I'm going to be late because the plane was late or I'm a busy dad. I have two fairly young children. And if the school had called today and said one of your children is sick, I would have delayed our interview today for the podcast, but it would have been inevitable delay. It wouldn't have been that you'd say, well, Tim's such a procrastinator. So there's a voluntary nature to procrastination, but not always an awareness. And the reason I want to emphasize that is that procrastination itself can become a habit. So at the beginning, I might be aware. but Later on, it's just that every time that something that I don't feel like doing comes up, my go-to coping strategy is avoidance or procrastination. So awareness isn't always key. And in fact, when we talk about how we might address procrastination, we'll have to come back to that too, because one of the first things we have to become aware of is the fact that that's what we're doing. We're coping through avoidance. I see. So do you mind explaining to our listeners from a psychological point of view, how is habit defined and how does procrastination become like, what is the threshold when it becomes a casual procrastination to a habit of procrastinating? Well, habit is repetition, and habit is something that's non-conscious. So once something's established as a habit, it's something that we don't have to be aware of, as we said a moment ago, that really what's happened to you is that you've repeated this behavior, and it's been rewarded in some way, 
so that it becomes, as we would say, the prepotent response, or in other words, habitual. When the situation arises, this is the response. Now with procrastination, what that typically is, is that I face a task that I find aversive in some ways. So I find it boring or frustrating or causes me anxiety or fear or resentfulness, all all these negative emotions. You pick your favorite one or add others. And my response to that can be habitual in the sense that as soon as I experience those emotions, I try to escape them using avoidance. So it's when it becomes automatic for us, a prepotent response, no thinking required, that we would say procrastination has become a habit. And it doesn't take very long, really, because we get rewarded for procrastination. If I'm facing a task I don't want to do and I put it off, I do get an immediate reward. Notwithstanding that later on, I'm going to pay a big price. But right now, present self benefits and future self, well, who cares about future self? So certainly a kind of a tantrum, a psychological tantrum to emotionally unbearable or unbearable emotional responses to something that is either going to be difficult or challenging. And is it always then a psychological response? Is procrastination a psychological phenomenon? I would argue that it is, yes. And I'd take it a step further and say that it's not really a time management issue. That's one of the big things that everyone will say, oh, you study time management. No, no, I don't. I actually study emotion management because what we're trying to do is manage our emotions. You captured it there with that psychological response to something that I find upsetting or aversive, we would say. And that if I can escape those emotions, I will, because I want to feel good now. And that's got that tantrum quality. I like that word you used, that, yeah, I'm acting like a little kid. And we have little kid alive and well in us. And in fact, we could, if we wanted to stretch it a bit, we'd say, yep, that's our limbic system. And children are primarily limbic system and not so much prefrontal cortex, but we're all, we all have a limbic system. And so I have that strong emotional response and I don't want those negative emotions. So I cope by avoiding. And it's very quick to reinforce. Well, thank you for clarifying. I think this is a quite common misnomer, at least in the way I see people are handling procrastination, particularly dealing with the young developing mind. So this is interesting to me that when we find something that we need to do, ought to do, but the way we need to do it or what goes into getting it done is quite anxiety provoking or maybe it's not clear or it's difficult or it's boring. And then we procrastinate. And as we are doing that, do we forget about the goal that we are avoiding to achieve? Or is that still in the back of our mind? What is actual process in the brain if we understand it the way you see it now? There's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. In other words, that we had an intention that we're now not acting on. And we don't like this cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is studied a great deal in terms of having an attitude or a belief that's opposite to the behavior. So my attitude or my belief is I should be working now, and my behavior is I'm not. And so we do our best to cope with that by trying to forget. In fact, we want to push it into the background or to rationalize that, in fact, our delay is a good thing. So we'll try to convince ourselves things like, I'll feel more like it tomorrow, or I work better under pressure. These are rationalizations to try to deal with the fact that what's provoked when we have cognitive dissonance is even another level of negative emotions. So the task created negative emotions. We didn't, we resented it or we found it boring or, or frustrating or it caused anxiety. But then when we avoided it, those emotions go away, but an individual differences come to play here. We can have other emotions like guilt and anxiety about not doing our work. Now, I say individual differences come into play because some of us are less emotionally stable, more worrisome, 
and we're more likely to grab by that. And others that are more easygoing, once they've put it off, it's out of sight and out of mind, at least for a little while, and they actually do feel good. So it does vary from person to person. But again, the notion there is that what's happening psychologically is cognitive dissonance, is discrepancy between what I said I was going to do, work on my assignment, what I'm doing, playing some game right now. And I, I do try my best to forget things. In fact, in some of our early research, we even found that people who score high on self-reports of procrastination actually drink more alcohol as well. And we would argue that some of that is an active uh, activity that they're trying to push down their thoughts about the task at hand, distract themselves. I see. So people who are less emotionally stable are more aware of their procrastination and the f- negative feeling or disappointment in themselves. And then they would like to dumb it, numb it down with something like alcohol or, or drugs. And I see that a lot in my practice, particularly adolescent and adults with ADHD. There are a lot of coexisting behaviors that, that result from Uh, having some emotional challenge in dealing with the unanticipated, dealing with having to go into the depth of a task or having to analyze parts and whole. And, you know, a lot of cognitive processes that go into organizing, sequencing, categorizing. And then the response is always of emotional frustration and disappointment, anxiety, anger. And then it's coped uh, poorly with a lot of adaptive behaviors that are not acceptable. So do we see that? Is there a good understanding in the literature that how children's behavior with respect to procrastination and how it is similar or different from adults? Yes and no. There's not enough research on procrastination with younger children. So we have to extrapolate from other existing research. And really, you know, our focus today on executive function and even your mention of ADHD brings that up, that certainly children have less resources in terms of development in terms of sequencing behaviors or inhibiting impulses. And that's why I said earlier that we've got you know, we're primarily this limbic system when we're younger, and we don't have the same resources in terms of executive function. And if it's compromised at all in terms of diagnoses of ADHD or other shortcoming executive function, we have other problems there. So certainly the maturation of executive function is going to be a very important resource to anyone to stop or inhibit procrastination. But so are volitional skills, just learn volitional skills so that we have developmental issues, And naturally, we have learning issues as well. And so children need to both learn these things quite concretely. And the more that you face challenges with executive function, the more you have to learn these strategies. And you also have the fact that, yep, there's just strictly development going on as well. Wonderful. And we will be talking about strategies in our next segment. So people should really tune in. This has been a question that has been bugging me and see what your thoughts are. But, you know, human evolution allowed us to pursue goals, delayed goals. Our prefrontal system came on and which allowed us to see ourselves in the future and that ability to inhibit current gratification in order to benefit in the future is the hallmark of human development. And procrastination is just such a contradiction to that. So how does this fit in that framework? It's a tough one because we're all going to have to speculate when we think about the evolutionary adaptiveness or not. It could be a side effect, you could call it a um, vestigial aspect of uh, some other adaptive process. But I would argue that with procrastination, what we're seeing is the battle between two systems. And I referred to earlier the prefrontal cortex or executive function. You talked about that in an evolutionary sense. It's the newest part of the brain. And then we have this old, people will call the reptilian brain, the limbic system. And they're working at odds at times. So I'd like to feel good now is the primary 
focus of, let's say, the limbic system, that how we're feeling, and then you lay on top of that the slower and more laborious processes known as executive function, and the two are at odds at times. So as much as it is adaptive for us to be able to have long-term goals and plan, and it's also related to social processes as well, but at the same time, it doesn't negate the fact that I have feelings right now, and I also have a hedonic priority that has left the human body, that we would prefer to feel good now. We're not always interested in long-term gain. So I think that my best guess at this point in terms of my understanding as a researcher is that really procrastination is the outcome of the conflict between these two systems. <laughs> I think well said. <laughs> I'm laughing because I had a conversation with Carol Tavris, who is a researcher who studies the cognitive dissonance and it's that hot potato and we would love to get rid of this conflicting thoughts that are harboring in our heart or in our brains and then action of course uh, tends to favor always the current feelings always the current self trumps it's so dominant isn't it <laughs> yes in um, fact we, there's lots of research that show that I think Hal Hirschfield out of UCLA has demonstrated in a number of different studies that we think about future self like a stranger and we do that both at the physiological level in, yes. terms, in terms of even how we conceive of our own self. We act differently if we can bring that self closer. So, yeah, that, that's a real problem in terms of human functioning. We have these biases, as some behavioral economists say, we're predictably irrational. And when we see these predictable irrationalities, we're seeing what we would want to call design flaws in what it means to be human. But it really what we're saying is this is part of what it means to be human. We have these conflicting messages from our own brains. Yeah, so that brings me to another very important question regarding procrastination and the social context. What is the social psychology behind procrastination? I think when we procrastinate something, we are not affecting our future self. We are also affecting our surroundings, our goals that we may share with others. And in fact, we may be one part of the larger picture and we withholding that piece or delaying that piece is causing a lot of pressure on the system of collaboration. So do you uh, have any insights about that? Well, in fact, our most recent book was an edited collection of chapters. The book is called Procrastination, Health and Well-Being. And the first editor is a colleague of mine from Sheffield University in the UK, Fuchsia Sirwa. And she had uh, done some research with Ben Jiguer at Guelph University. And they took the first real social psychological perspective to procrastination. And it interests me a lot because they talk about norm-based approach to procrastination. And basically, the premise is this, that in a well-functioning group, uh, self-regulation failure, which procrastination is, will typically transgress social norms. Because if self-regulation failure were normative, and that is that the majority of individuals did this behavior... And over time, the vitality of the group would be diminished. So what's happening here is when you see it from this perspective, procrastination is not just my problem, an all-nighter. Procrastination signals to the group that you really can't be trusted. Like we can't put faith in you and that you will reciprocate, for example, or you'll be there for us during tough times. And so this transgression of social norms is another very interesting way to think about procrastination. And sure enough, if you try to look for indicators of this. Well, what would be an indicator that you've transgressed a social norm? Well, an emotion like shame, because you realize that you're being, you're doing something that is a transgression to others and guilt. So shame and guilt are highly correlated with procrastination. And we're seeing this as from this perspective as evidence, the fact that 
Uh, procrastination is a violation of a social norm. In some ways, it might even relate to the evolutionary question you asked me. So where does this come from? Well, we see in the major personality traits indicators of traits that we value in others. And one of them that we don't value very much is not being dependable and having self-regulation problems. So that's really a the broad brush of understanding. So how can we understand procrastination from a social norm perspective? And I think that a lot more research should be done in this area. Yeah, this just got me thinking about, you know, in my family, I have two boys and uh, they are young adults. Uh, they're in college. And I texted them about information about your blogs and your book and all the amazing research you are doing because I think it's such a applicable topic and it really profoundly affects all of us on a daily, particularly as you mentioned, when we are trying to accomplish multifaceted goals. And I asked uh, both my sons to send me a quick list of things that they're trying to avoid as we speak. So I said, this will give me a chance to talk to (laughs) Dr. Pitchell. And And so one son immediately texted me and his list was very specific, you know, updating my resume, replying to an email, homework for my econ class, buying a shampoo Mm -hmm. and conditioner. And my other son, who did not reply right away, I had to nudge him. And so he responded back and after two, three days. And one of the items on that list is sending text to mom (laughs) and a a smiley emoji. (laughs) So I think the conversation I'm going to have with them about this. So why do we avoid tasks? Why do we delay this? Is this a personality issue? Is it a task-related issue? Is it a thinking failure? Or is it a lack of uh, uh, willpower, motivation, ability to push oneself? You know, the interesting thing about it and the thing that keeps me so interested in the topic is that it's all of the above. Now, first of really? all, it's, per- it's, it's person by situation, of course, because we can never have a, a personality without a situation that they're in. And so, for example, if I'm someone, as I described earlier, is highly emotionally unstable and maybe very low in conscientiousness, particularly low in conscientiousness, we see that as a strong predictor of procrastination because what is conscientiousness but another word for many of the executive functions because you're plan. If someone's high in conscientiousness, they're planful, they're dutiful, they're organized. And so if you lack those things, then many things come off the rails when you're trying to have goal pursuit. But if you add to that worry and things like that, now you've got this very strong emotional reaction to things. When I listen to your son's examples, what interested me so much is that on the one hand, I can see exactly why someone would say I'm procrastinating and getting my CV together because it can be linked with some deep existential angst and uncertainty of will I get a job and what will my life be like? And I don't even really know what a good CV is, particularly for this circumstance. And certainly in research, we see uncertainty as a high correlate of procrastination. When we're uncertain, we're fearful, and then we just want to avoid it. Uh, At the same time, when your other son talked about uh, tongue-in-cheek, he said, well, texting back to mom. I think (laughs) of my own son. When he was about six years old, I said to my son, you know, it's time that you started making your own bed. He said, I don't feel like it. I don't want to. And I thought, am I going to have this fight today? (laughs) Because this is not going to go very well. (laughs) So I I played a little trick on him. And I said, hey, uh, Alex, how would you like to make a dollar? He said, you'll pay me a dollar and make my bed? I said, no, I'll give you a dollar if you can count to 10 before I make your bed. He said, really? I said, yeah, but you have to count 1,001, 1,002. So basically in seconds. So we practiced for a moment. So he got the counting right. Now, he has a single bed with a sheet and a duvet and a pillow. And he <laughs> learned very quickly. Yeah, it took me six seconds, not even going very quickly, to make his bed. 
And he said, I don't get the dollar, do I? And I said, no, but what did you learn? He said, it takes six seconds to make my bed. I said, exactly. And I think you would have fought with me for an hour about making it. And that takes me back to the story of your second son. So when we procrastinate on these little things like answering mom's text, it's the strangest thing to me. And I don't think we completely understand it yet at all. But we create this momentous task out of it, like the bed making or putting away dishes or picking up socks. It literally takes seconds. And in fact, if we can just get started on it, we're there. And so with your second son, I find it really fascinating that even put that off. So there's many layers to this. So I I talked about person and situation. It's certainly the way we think about things. We can catastrophize and make things worse than they are. We've seen that in some very early research we did with experience sampling, where we put pagers on students. And early in the game, when they are avoiding their tasks, they'd say, oh, I work better under pressure and I'll feel more like it tomorrow. But finally, we'd page them and they were doing the task they'd been putting off. And none of them spontaneously said things like, no, I'm so glad I waited till now because I work so much better under pressure. Instead, they were (laughs) saying, I don't know why I didn't start earlier. This is not nearly as bad as I thought. In fact, we even saw that in statistical uh, appraisals of how difficult or stressful or non-enjoyable tasks were. Their appraisals change once they get started. So it is the way we think about and construe our tasks. So all of these things can conspire. And if you put them all together, of course, you can get that proverbial perfect storm for procrastination. So all of these things play a role. Wow. Well, this just uh, made me think about my experience with my clients that there are many students, rather, many, many clients that I work with have difficulty conceptualizing or visualizing the future self, but they also have difficulty conceptualizing and visualize the task uh, in its complete state. What does a made, you know, completely well-made bed looks like? What does sink without dishes looks like? So it is you're working your way backwards. So the planning and when I do the planning uh, training or goal management training, one of the things that I always tell parents, for example, is take the picture of a bed when it's made to show them what the target looks like. So we can, uh, you know, this understanding of how to do halfway and not feel anxious that I didn't do it all the way, particularly for those who are perfectionists and those who are, uh, you know, push off the starting point, they can have some starting point like you showed it to your son so beautifully. So I've kind of said uh, that, you know, the pillow is right here, the duvet cover is right here, and then the sheet is right here. So let's say if you had to divide this into three parts and you have you don't have time to do all of it, which one part you will do that's easy and manageable. So giving the full complete picture of a well-made bed as a target and then teaching people to do par, uh, piecemeal so that they learn to manage the anxiety that goes into not wanting to start, um, has uh, I find that very helpful to people as I'm training them. Uh, I think that's brilliant. And, and, I, and I would encourage listeners to stick around for the second part because I want to build on that too, because I know from research that if you try to think of a whole project that's much bigger than that, like a thesis, it can freeze you in your tracks. So we do need to add a piece later on about, okay, it's one thing to understand, okay, this is what a final thesis looks like. And then you look at those 200 pages and go, oh my goodness, how am I going to do that? And so that's a piece of the puzzle we can address in the second part. So as we end, is there any upside to procrastination? Probably a foolish question, but uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. It's not foolish at all because almost every reporter sooner or later asked me that because there's been terms described even in the research literature, such as active procrastination. And just this past January, we published a paper demonstrating that this is kind of an, not kind of, this is an oxymoron, active (laughs) procrastination. It's 
it, really these people aren't procrastinators at all. They use delay, but they use delay with the awareness that they can still pull it off well and they're not going to be upset by it. And that's not true for the procrastinators. And even the authors that describe active procrastinators really delineate these people as being emotionally stable and capable, and they can assess the fact they can do it. So I'd say, well, they're not procrastinating. It doesn't, it flies in the face of the, the de definition of procrastination. So th the short answer to your question is no, there's no upside to procrastination because procrastination is quite narrowly defined as that negative form of delay where we voluntarily delay, voluntarily delay an intended act, even though we expect to be worse off for the delay. And all the other flavors of delay should be distinguished from that because delay is part of our lives. And if we only have one word, procrastination, to define all forms of delay, then we're going to feel horrible about ourselves. Thank you so much for your incredible explanation. And most importantly, I'm so grateful for you to uh, dedicating your life to studying procrastination, particularly in 21st century, it has become even more relevant. And I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. And I can't wait to get started with the second part because you will be telling our listeners what can we do since they probably are suffering from procrastination just as you and I are suffering from procrastination. So thank you so much, Dr. Pitchell, for being on this podcast today. It's my pleasure. All right. So that was our conversation with Dr. Tim Pitchell. <laughs> Sujeta, what a great conversation. Learned a lot. It's helping me rethink how I approach this problem that, that I have and everyone else has with regards to procrastination. So lead us off with some of your initial thoughts. So all I can say, Todd, is procrastination is real. And it is a real problem. So when managing executive function disorders, we cannot ignore the client's tendencies to procrastinate. It is not something they are doing because they are disorganized. This is a deep emotional connection. And everybody who's dealing with executive function or executive function related disorders must understand the psychology behind it. So let's review the definition that Tim was talking about. You know, procrastination is a needless but voluntary delay and often intended action in spite of knowing full well that it will cause harm or will prove to be disadvantageous to self. And so the key feature of procrastination, as I have now come to understand that we all need to think about is the delaying that happens here is needless, but it is deliberate. <laughs> so it's such a contradiction, right? You make the goal, then you should have no reason to delay. But then you are delaying because the goal you made is important, but what goes into pursuit of that goal is painful. So we are also very aware that it will cause harm. And the harm is not so much physical harm as you can imagine. It's a harm because we are not going to accomplish the very goal that we want to accomplish. So this delay, which is the procrastination itself, is a coping mechanism to handle the uncomfortable feeling the task or intended action generates. So that's where the true you know, psychological growth is to understand that there is a goal, there's an intention, and then there's a delay because that intended goal hurts. So as you heard Tim was saying that there are other types of delays, they are not the same as active procrastination, though. For example, an unintentional delay in getting something done. So, for example, you were planning to pick up the laundry, but your car wouldn't start or you have a flat tire on your way. It's an unintentional delay. It does postpone, so to speak, the intended action to further future in time, but that's not an intentional delay. And the second part is that the uh, necessary but needed delay, that means for example, you have a plan to go to the bank 
And then that morning you wake up and your child is sick. So now you have to make an urgent appointment with your doctor and then going to the bank gets postponed. So uh, certainly procrastination needs to be understood with that kind of clarity that it is certainly very, very much related to the needless but voluntary delay. Yeah, boy, you know, what frustrates me about procrastination is that when I do ultimately get to work on the thing that I've been delaying, it was easier than I thought. And I'm like, why did I, why did I painfully delay this thing? It always frustrates me. So that's what's so frustrating though, right? So procrastination does have substantial costs. It causes grief to our future selves, but yet we keep doing it again and again and again. Yeah, that's a really great question, Todd. The oldest part of the human brain or the reptilian brain is fueled by this hedonic tendency to feel good now. And the human being prefers to feel good over the pursuit of something in the future, which comes after a delay, particularly if the pressure of incomplete tasks or the impending steps to getting to that task accomplished can cause a lot of stress. So often this desire to feel good now dominates or overshadows the more long-term goals or the futuristic plans. So you can see wanting to feel good now is at the seat of procrastination. The evolutionary adaptiveness governed by the prefrontal cortex is relatively new kid on the block and is often at odds with this ancient primitive, yes, dominating limbic system, which hijacks that feeling of discomfort, moments of feeling uh, uncomfortable, and then it will do anything such as procrastinate, you know? So when these two systems work at odds, uh, you can guess who wins, the, always the limbic system every time. And that's the reason that we, again, in my work, we do something called metacognitive training, which is making people aware of the intentional control they have over not just their intended future tasks, but their emotions as well. So the mature prefrontal system, of course, learns the volitional skills of self-control and kind of resisting the temptation to give in to feeling good. And that, of course, requires a lot of hard work. And that is why handling procrastination is as much work as, you know, enduring the pain of having to do the tasks that are difficult, which kind of develop this urge to procrastinate, so to speak. So can improved habits help here? And if so, I mean, how should one connect procrastination with habits? Yeah, that's a very good question. This is what I was thinking about, that procrastination is the highest form of self-sabotage. And when we procrastinate, we undermine our pursuit of goals or even happiness for that matter, right? So the act of procrastination comes from a deep reluctance to act because it's driven by emotions of discomfort, anxiety, uncertainty. We will do anything to avoid the pain that goes with the unknown or pain that goes with hard work, you know, like diving deep is really, really, I don't want to say use the word painful here, but requires deep work and deep work can be exhausting. And so with the prospect of, you know, taking on something exhausting can be really worth, you know, wanting to avoid. So from the executive function perspective, we have to be deliberate and intentional. We can do that by activating the regulatory part of the brain that is in charge of planning, taking decisions, delaying gratification, and seeing the big picture. So what starts as coping mechanism to handle stress and discomfort runs the risk of becoming a habit, which is much more internalized and subconscious. So procrastination can become a automatic, natural process of 
uh, avoiding pain and discomfort. So the way to manage that I see is great habits. That means I have a habit of making my bed or a habit of I get up in the morning. I talk a lot with my clients about developing three mental habits of reviewing routines and then creating a mental map of a passage of time and reviewing at three intervals during the day, the end of morning routine, midday routine, end of the uh, workday routine, and those who can afford it, end of the night routine. So routine is that intentional pause to view what got done and anticipate what is going to be needed to be done and creating kind of a roadmap and concrete plan. And that concrete plan can also become a stress reliever. So the habit of reviewing plans that you make can also inoculate you from the pain of procrastination. But it sounds like procrastination is not the opposite of being good at practicing time management, right? And it doesn't sound like it can be remediated with your traditional time management strategies. I see this in business world that people are using time management word a lot and they talk about overcoming procrastination as if it's failing to understand the importance of time. And that's really not the case. So business strategists are saying that, you know, five ways to manage your time better and none of them actually address the psychosocial emotional issues of the reptilian brain wanting to feel good now. You know, it says, oh, yeah, why don't you make a good plan? Well, what if you don't know what exactly to do? And so, yes, from that point of view, I think procrastination is different from time management problems. And those who procrastinate do not suffer from lacking the sense of time as the only sole problem. So recently I came across this wonderful poster which depicted average human life of 85 years in this illustration of rows and columns where there are 52 weeks in a year and then 85 years. And every day you cross off one week as you go through time. And as you cross off, you realize that, wow, I have a very limited time. So managing time in that sense requires you to have a great sense of the big picture of time. And, you know, the way I think about time is time is truly a one very important non-renewable resource. And if we invest our energy to understand the importance of time, then we can actually understand that the delay caused internally by the pain that comes from having to engage in the task is futile and we must not waste any more time with the fear that we have when we have the goal. So either we go back to evaluating the goal or we go back evaluating the task and how to execute it rather than just harbor on using time management techniques such as you know, putting a timer alone, because that wouldn't help solve the problem of, particularly in the context of procrastination, of the pain and fear that is associated with having to take on the challenging task. So talk to me about procrastination and an existential crisis. Yes. You know, Tim talked about this, and there's a lot of philosophical connection in his work. You know, at heart, I feel like he's such a deeply thoughtful philosopher and he has connected his philosophical mindset with his research and brought such caring, affectionate solutions to all the folks that he deals with, particularly college students. So why do we spend a lot of time but accomplishing very little? You know, that's a dilemma that every individual is facing on a daily basis. 
when we face a daunting challenge or a large task, we use the mind to freak ourselves out instead of engaging into the very work that needs to be done and moving forward. In many situations, to do or not to do is the dilemma that all of us face. And it all boils down to that existential crisis. You know, man has always struggled with it. And he's often trapped pondering over these questions like, what is the meaning of life? Who am I in the vast ocean of time? Why am I here? And why does this matter? What small things that I'm trying to complete here? How does this matter? And again, I'm going to bring another artistic uh, reference here. One of my favorite, favorite artists is On Kawara. He's a Japanese artist. And I was traveling in Switzerland and I went to Art Basel and I saw this in an exhibit. You know, he has produced an artwork called One Million Years. It is a two volume collection of books. It's made up of 2000 page book. One is labeled past and the second is labeled future. And then the title reads that uh, for all those who have lived and died, it begins at year 998,031 years BC and ends one million year later in 1969. I think that's when he produced this artwork. And the second one that's labeled you know, future begins in 1993 and goes forward one million years. In this book, you know, there are 10 columns, five blocks of 100 years. Each block contains 10 lines and you flip this this page and boom, in 2000 pages and million years are over. And when you open to the, you know, 2018, for example, you realize that's a tiny dot in the passage of time. And so, you know, religion talks very much about this idea, describes this idea of sloth in the religious context. Uh, That's why we hear a lot about wasting time being a sin. As I was preparing for this podcast, Takeaways, and my discussion with Dr. Tim Pitchell, I got connected with a lot of my friends from various religions and to see what their religion says. And in Hinduism and in Sikh religion, we have this wonderful poet, Kabir, who says, Kal karo so ajkar, aj karo so ab, pal mein mrityu hoega, kaj karega kab. You know, so it says, that do anything that you intend to do, do it right away. And uh, there's no need to wait for one to start a good deed because life is passing by. My Buddhist friend, Gareth, shared his thoughts on Buddhist views. And you know, Gareth, he talked about time-wasting behaviors. In Buddhism, there is a general admonition that a human birth is rarely encountered. And as often as a turtle coming up in the ocean and happening to put his head through a floating ring. That's how rare human birth is. And it's incredibly precious since it is in the human life that we have the opportunity for enlightenment. And we share this philosophy in Hinduism as well. So, you know, Garrett shared this wonderful Buddhist prayer with me by Roshi Jetsunama Tenjin Palmo. And uh, it's called the Song of Spiritual Change. It says, do not deceive yourself with laziness which things to practice tomorrow or the next day, or you will die praying for help. Quickly, quickly help yourself and take the essence of truth. So what I'm trying to say is it's really, really example that existential crisis happens when we are truly questioning the very essential step that at one point was important to us. And we committed to achieving that goal through that step. 
but we are now hesitating to act on it. There are lots of forces that are encouraging us to act, and that's the one and primary solution to overcoming procrastination. Holy smokes. Well, lots to think about there. Goodness. So, Suchita, before we go, any final thoughts? Yeah, you know, executive function is doing. It's all about doing and in knowing what needs to be done and doing what needs to be done. It is not about knowing. And I always say this to people that if we want to master executive proficiency, we need to really master the art of engaging and engaging now without any hesitation. So the secret there is to do and not just to sit with the idea, I should, I could, I must. Not knowing how can be a huge barrier and working on those barriers is the essence of mastering executive function. So I hope all the listeners here can say to yourself, I know too much. I better not procrastinate. You know, I need to make use of every bit of time, a small window, a tiny opening, a slice of unaccounted time or unexpected free spot. I must make use of it. And the minute I know I am stalling, then the only thing I need to do is take action. So when you find yourself in the middle of putting something off, ask yourself, what emotion is this task invoking in me that I am wanting to avoid? What is hijacking my engagement? And what's the so in this task that's causing this aversive response? Subscribe to the act now philosophy. Let's say you are overwhelmed by having to get a response to somebody and you haven't done the research, take the minute to formulate an email, which takes probably five minutes. Take a minute to look that person's email and send that and saying, you know what, I'm going to get back to you in a day because I'm looking into it. So this acting into a step, even as you are handling the bigger steps can be very, very helpful. So in the thick of it all, remind yourself that the opposite of procrastination is well-being. And that's where we must move. That's where the success is. And that's where true, true joy of compensating for this existential crisis that we all are likely to suffer from. Wow. Great stuff. Great stuff. I always say to myself, just start, buddy. Just start. Because once you start, you get some momentum, then everything changes. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of our host, Jada Kamath, and all of us here at Cerebral Matters, thank you for listening. We'll look forward to seeing you next week for our second conversation with Dr. Tim Pitchell, and we'll see you next time on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.